couple of weeks ago, we wrapped up. Jesus was teaching in parables, and we, we talked about that. And so this is coming right off of that. That day, so after he had finished teaching these parables, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up. The waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. They asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's kind of an iconic picture of Jesus calming a storm. If you've uh, spent very much time in a church, you probably heard this story or heard something like this, this idea, again, that Jesus calms storms. Again, it's, it's an iconic picture, and it's easy for us to miss some of what's going on. Greg, if you'll show that first picture. In 1986, some guys pulled a boat out of the Sea of Galilee. The other one. Go back, that one. They, they, these guys pulled that top boat out of the Sea of Galilee. They've called it the Jesus boat because they dated it to uh, the first century A.D., and they're saying this is probably the type of boat that Jesus would have sailed around in. You can see kind of the restored version down there in the bottom right corner. Just to give you a picture, the, 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 they weren't in a canoe, but they weren't in a cruise liner either. The thing's about 25 feet long, uh, 7 feet wide, 4 feet high. You would have had four guys with oars to power it, one guy steering it, I guess is what you call it. Maybe 15 other people could have fit in the boat. Jesus would have been asleep in the back. The stern is the back, and he would have been asleep back there somehow. I'm not sure how. If you've ever been in a storm, if you've ever been in a plane that hit turbulence, I don't know who sleeps through that. If you've ever been in a car when somebody jerks the steering wheel or slams on the brakes, it might be Jesus' greatest miracle that he slept through all that. <laughs> this is what I think, but I can't say this because the Bible said he was asleep, and so he was asleep, but part of me thinks he was just messing with them. <laughs> it makes sense. Because I don't know how in the world, I don't know. So, this, this idea of a furious squall, that word can also be translated hurricane. Greg, you can show that next picture. This is, the, this is what the disciples are thinking. This was painted in 1695 uh, by somebody back, Husen, art history majors can correct my pronunciation. This is the picture, I think, from the disciples' perspective. So you've got at least four of these guys are experienced fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They normally fished at night, so that this is not difficult for them in terms of being on the being in a boat on the lake at night. Obviously, that they've experienced a storm at some point in their life, but this one was different. This was a hurricane-type storm. The Bible says that they were scared of dying. If you've ever been in a group with 12 men, it takes something pretty significant for the guys to begin to tell one another, "I'm scared." That doesn't have. That's not an easy bonding thing. For men, so what I'm picturing is you have the maybe some maybe the the uh, junior disciples have to start off rowing the oars, and everybody else is kind of sitting back, letting them do the work. Then this storm kicks up, and then Peter and Andrew and these guys are like, well, let me do it, and they step up there, and they're all trying to do their thing. Maybe they're bailing water. Again, somehow Jesus is asleep in the stern. I don't. I'm wondering, like, did they draw straws to see who would go wake him up? Did they? Were they wondering, maybe if we yell loud enough, he'll just wake up on his own? You wonder if there's some grumbling. Like, does he not know 
what's going on? Is he passed out? Is he in a co- You wonder what's going on in that boat and for how long they struggled. Again, these are 12 men. You know how long it takes a guy to ask for directions. It takes longer for a guy to ask for help, much less 12 of them. So they're struggling along for quite a while, and at some point, somebody wakes him up. And he gets up in three words. Quiet, be still. Shh. Everything ends. Looks at the guys. Why are y'all afraid? Pretty obvious question. Why are y'all afraid? Do you still have no faith? And it says they were terrified of him. What it, who is this guy? When it says they were scared of, when Jesus, the question he asks, are you afraid? That word is, are you, why are you cowardly? Why are you timid? Why are you being a sissy? But then this word for they were terrified of him, it's a completely different word. A lot of times it's used of people being in awe of God. They'd seen him open people's eyes. They'd seen him heal other folks, paralytics. They'd seen him drive demons out of people. They'd heard him teach these parables. They knew there was something special about this guy, but he still kind of fit under the umbrella of, yeah, he's the Messiah. I get it. We know he's going to do these things. Completely different ballgame when somebody controls nature. Just think for you. You're with somebody after this service. You come up for prayer. You've got a bad back or something, and somebody prays for you, and your back feels better. You think, wow, that's good. Same person tomorrow, there's a tornado coming down your street. They step out the front door and say, stop. And the, that's a whole different ballgame in terms of power. And these guys are going, who? we thought we knew who you were. Maybe we didn't. Let me look at a few things here. You've probably already seen this. So this is their picture. To me, this is what the disciples, this is their perspective on what's going on. I don't know if you've ever been in a life and death situation where if God didn't come through, you are literally going to die. I never have. But it's pretty easy to kind of make this parallel. When we're feeling overwhelmed, we say things like, I'm taking on water, I'm sinking, I'm drowning, I'm swamped. We use that type of language and so it's pretty easy to kind of metaphorically say yeah I've, I've been there maybe in your own life right now you could put a title on that picture that's your financial situation or that's your relationship with your mother-in-law or that's your job that's something for you you've got this thing this storm raging in some area of your life maybe not the whole thing but there's some area of your life where you would say absolutely I'm taking on water I'm sinking I'm drowning and If you were completely honest, you'd say, and I think he's asleep in the back of the boat. That's where some of us live. Look at the questions the disciples ask when they finally wake up Jesus. The first question, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care about us? That kind of the the feeling of those words is we are perishing in the south. We're fixing to die. That's what they're saying. And you're asleep. Don't you care? Have you ever asked that of the Lord? Have you ever kind of waving the flags? I'm down here. Do you not see what's going on? We keep going back to the doctor. We keep running tests. The bank account continues to be hit. Nothing is coming in. Everything is going out. My boss is still the same that he always, I'm praying. I'm doing my best to be submissive and to honor him. He's still a jerk. Wait, if you can create the entire universe in six days just by speaking can't you fix fill in the blank whatever your picture is of the hurricane in your own life it's easy in those moments to begin to wonder does he even care 
most of us don't question his ability. We know what he's able to do. We question his willingness. What will he do in my life? It's easy for us to think he's asleep in the back. Before we rail on the disciples too hard, though, at least they knew where to go. They did eventually wake him up. It doesn't work so well for them. Things don't go so well for them once they do wake him up in terms of his interaction with them. But at least they knew where to go. And I would say the same thing for you. If you were dead dog honest right now and said, I think he's asleep in the back of the boat, I would beg you this morning, will you at least try to wake him up? Just ask him to get involved. I've done it and nothing's happened. Ask, shake him again. Where else are you going to go? There's a point, in, I think it's in John 6. Jesus has drawn this huge crowd. All these people are following him, and then he gives this horrific teaching on eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I think he's just trying to see who's in and who's out. He uses this really inflammatory language that 100% sounds like he's saying he's talking about cannibalism. He's not, but that's what it sounds like. And I'm sure the disciples are just banging their head on the we finally got a crowd, and now you're running people off. Everybody's going to think you're crazy. You know, they're going to think we're crazy because we're connected with you, and everybody's leaving. And he looks at Peter and says, are y'all gone too? Peter says, where else are we supposed to go? You've got the words of life. And that's, that's the attitude that we want to have. God, I don't get it. I don't understand. This is not too hard for you. I'm not sure why you won't get involved. You 100%, I 100% think you are asleep in the back of the boat. But I don't have any place else to go. So I'm going to keep coming back to you until you either fix it or until I die, whichever comes first. That's the type of attitude he's looking for. Second question, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. This is actually the most important question. Until you answer the question, who is this, you're constantly going to ask the question, does he care? Because the way he works, it's just it's hard to grasp. He says that about himself. He doesn't need a me to be his defense attorney, but what he says in Isaiah, my ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my agenda is not yours, my priorities aren't yours, my timetable is not yours, we're, we're different on this, that's part of what it means for God to be holy, he's other than us, he's not working from the same script that we're working from, he sees things that we don't, and he says that very plainly, listen, I'm not like y'all in a lot of ways, don't, don't judge me based on that, based on what you think should or should not happen, how I should or should not work. But we're living here in that hurricane. If you don't know who he is, you're constantly going to wonder if he cares. And then the second question, which is the, mo the second most important question you're ever going to have to answer, is what am I going to do with him? Once you figure out who he is, then you, gotta then you have to answer, well, what am I going to do with who he is? This is just real quick. Agree or disagree in your mind. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Say yes or no for yourself. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Yes or no for you. Not intellectually in terms of how you live, your heart. Are you living as if, as if he is the light of the world? I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Yes or no. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you see him as a shepherd in your life? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Agree or disagree? 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Yes or no? Again, not for the Bible competency exam. For your life. Yes or no? We'll get to this in Mark 8. Jesus is walking down the road with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say I am? And Peter says, some folks say you're Elijah. You're this miracle-working, wonder-working prophet. Some people say you're John the Baptist. You're this um, kind of old-school, hard-line, fire-and-brimstone, preaching repentance, calling people back to God prophet. Other people say you're other prophets. And then Jesus narrows it down. What about y'all? Who do y'all say that I am? And he asks the same question to everyone who has ever lived, the 120 billion people who've ever lived in the history of the earth. Who do you say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Every one of us has to answer it at some point. John and Michael answered it. Many of you have answered it. If you haven't, there's nothing more pressing in your life. Your taxes are not more important. Your deadlines are not important. Your wife and your children are not more important. The most important issue for you to decide, who is this guy? Once you come to that, then what are you going to do about it? If I can help you, please call me. We'll figure it out. If you don't think I can help you, I'll help you find somebody who can. The most important question for each of us to come to terms with. And once you know who he is, I do believe this. Once you truly know who he is, you won't ask whether he cares about you anymore. Throughout the New Testament, a common theme, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's it for us. Christ demonstrated his love in this. While we were still sinners, he died. God demonstrated his love, excuse me, in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once I know that, once I know that he's died for me, then how in the world can I wonder if he cares? He's already proven it. Nobody else has ever died for me. But he has. And he did it explicitly, saying, I'm doing this to show you that I love you. So when I don't get him, and I don't get him at least half the time, when I think he's slow, when I think he's asleep in the back of the boat, I can fall back and say, but you know what? It's not because he doesn't care, because he's already proven that to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, because I know who he is. He's the one who died for me. If you can get that in your heart, you won't ask that question either. So that's the disciples. They're looking at this from this perspective. We're fixing to die. Jesus is asleep. Don't you care? Who is this? Greg, if you'll show that next picture. This is how Jesus looks at it. Completely different. He doesn't see all that other stuff. When, he, when the disciples wake him up, I don't think he's angry. I think he's a little disappointed. If you've ever tried to get a kid to jump off the high dive or you've seen that, all you're saying is, trust me, I'm not going to let you drown. Just jump. I've got it. And when they refuse and they climb back down the stairs and everybody gets out of the way so they can do that, you're not mad at them. You're just disappointed. Not necessarily because they wouldn't jump, but because they didn't trust you enough. To, you're not going to let them drown. You're not going to let them suffer. You have them. I feel like that's what Jesus is saying in this. The disciples see this hurricane. And what he's just saying is, can you trust me enough to take a step? I've already told you. 
We just looked at it in Mark 3. You're my guys. Who are my brothers? Who are my brothers? And who is my mother? Those who do the will of my father. That's y'all. I just pulled y'all up on a mountain and said, you 12, y'all are my family. I'm literally in the boat with you. How can you wonder? How can you be so anxious about this? I'm not going to let anything happen. Jesus is asleep. To me, that shows his level of faith in his father. He had stuff to do. He knew he wasn't going to die. He hadn't done what he came to the earth to do yet. What he's looking for from the disciples is just some trust there. Just take a step, guys. I've got this. If I'm asleep in the back of the boat, it's probably okay for you guys to relax as well. If something needs to be done, I'll do it. The fact that I'm not doing anything should clue you in. Nothing needs to be done right now. Look at the questions he asks. Why are you so afraid? He's asking, why are you being such babies? Why are you sissies? Why are you cowards? Why are you so timid? And what they're doing is they're saying, not everybody in the boat can walk on water. If this thing goes down, we're done. But that's not how he sees it. The disciples say, we're afraid because we're fixing to die. Jesus says, you're afraid because you don't trust me very much. Completely different perspective on the same situation. Why are you so afraid? For us, it's obvious. The reason I'm afraid is fill in the blank. Whatever your storm is, that's the consequence of that. And what he's doing is he's looking at it from the other side saying, listen, do you, I'm right here. Just, why are you afraid? Take a step. Do you not believe I can catch you? Easy for me to say. But that's what he, I think that's the invitation. Do you not believe I can catch you? His second question is more important than his first. This, the first question is, why are you being a bunch of babies? The second question is, do you still have no faith? And the answer is, absolutely, we don't have any faith. That's why we're so afraid. I don't know how to give you faith. I don't know. It, faith rarely looks like laying on your couch, waiting on God to throw a lightning bolt. and do. That's not how it works most of the time. Faith is active trust. It's stepping off of that ledge. There's a little gap there between that ledge and his arms. That gap is faith. If there's no gap, then there's no need for faith. So for whatever that situation is for you, and I don't know what it is, there's going to be a step, and it's going to be a bit scary. I think it's actually okay to be afraid. It's just not okay to live in fear. Acknowledge that you're afraid and then move on. Courage is not never being afraid. It's being afraid and choosing not to live in those chains. I'm afraid and I'm going to keep moving anyway. That's courage. That's what he's looking for from us. In our family, I was mentioning the uh, Common Grounds last, in January, Penny's thing was, think of one thing that you can do, kind of like a New Year's resolution for your family. Just one that y'all can work on together. And So the one that we've been working on is your response is your responsibility or you're responsible for your response, however you want to say that. It doesn't matter if that chocolate chip cookie, if his chocolate chip cookie has more chocolate chips than you. It doesn't matter if she got 18 more seconds in the front seat than you this week. It doesn't matter if he didn't wash his toothpaste spit out of the sink before you got there. None of that matters. No excuses for pounding each other. No excuses for being rude to each other. You're 100% responsible for your response, regardless of the circumstances. No blaming, no comparing, no justifying, no explaining. Own it. It's your response. 
you've got to be responsible. I think that's what Jesus is saying here as well to the disciples. Absolutely, there's a hurricane. I get it. You're not responsible for the hurricane. You don't make the weather. What you're responsible for is how you choose to respond to the hurricane. And you can't blame, and you can't justify, and you can't argue, and you can't compare. Well, I'm braver than him. None of that matters. You're 100% responsible for your response. And in this case, the way you responded was in fear. Wrong answer. Not faith. That's the right answer. So wherever you find, whatever the storm is in your life, 100% we want to pray for God to change circumstances. And he can do that, and he will do that, and that's awesome when he does. But it's certainly easy to have faith when you just got a raise. And it's easy to have faith when you just got a clean bill of health. The thing for us is, how am I going to respond in a hurricane? Do I have faith there? We've talked before. This whole idea of the rocky soil, the this, this seed, the gospel, it takes, takes root and it springs up quick. But when tough times come, it withers and dies. And the way I read the Bible, that's not good. Paul says, he who stands, or Jesus actually, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You've got to hang in there. That's what he's looking for from us. Not justifying, not explaining, not comparing, not rationalizing. Yes, the circumstances are terrible. I 100% wish you'd fix them. But I'm not going to give in to fear here in this instance. This whole idea of feeling out of control. I actually don't think the desire to control is a sin. Sometimes in the church we talk about that. Somebody at the first service said, I thought you were going to play Carrie Underwood, Jesus take the wheel at some point. I'm not. That's not the thing for me. In Genesis 1, we said before, if you want to know how you're supposed to live, read Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God says to Adam and Eve, you guys are going to rule. See all of this stuff? You're going to rule this. You're going to have dominion. That's a strong word. Subdue all of this and have dominion over all of this. Genesis 2, I think it's 15, somewhere in there. Same thing. Here's a garden. Work it. Psalm 8, I think it's 4, no, 5 through 8. He says that David is talking to God, and he says, who, who are we? Who are we as humans that you've been so gracious and kind to us? You've made us just a little lower than the angels. You've crowned us with glory, and you've said rule everything. So this desire that we have to bring order, to manage, to rule, to organize, to reign, that's God-given. That's part of being created in his image, Christian or not. We all have that. That's part of our common inheritance from God, being created in his image. We all have this thing in us that says we've got we to gotta do something here. We need to rule. We need to reign. We need to subdue. We need to have dominion. We need to control. That's a negative-sounding word. It has this similar to this idea of rule. The problem for us is when we forget that we're the vice president and we think we're the president. And it's ultimately and we're ultimately responsible for how everything turns out, and we're not. Colossians 1, very clearly, Jesus holds all things together. That job description, that job title has already been taken. Nobody has to hold your life together. Somebody's already doing it. His name is Jesus. So this whole for some of you, you're you're wrestling. Well, how am I supposed to? What am I supposed to do is what you want to know. 
All right, faith, fear. Am I just supposed to sit in the boat as it takes on water? Am I just supposed to sink and figure he's going to throw me a lifeline at some point? This, I, the, again, the, the impulse that you have to fix it, that's part, of your, that's part of the divine nature in you. What I'm encouraging you to do is to, is to recognize you're secondary, he's primary. Again, you're, you're the associate. You're the vice president. He's the president. He, he, it's ultimately on him. At some point, it's going to be beyond your abilities to manage. You can't hold everything right here forever. And when those times come, if you feel like you're ultimately responsible, that's a bad place to be. In those times, the disciples, if they could just look and say, the guy who ultimately is responsible is asleep in the back of the boat. And if that's how big a deal he thinks it is, well, I guess maybe I don't have to get too worked up over it either. That's where we're trying to get as people. Not this uh, kind of laissez-faire, I don't do anything, God will fix it. Don't take responsibility for your actions or your life. That is the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, in the hurricane, see that picture. All that boy's got to do is take one step and trust his dad to catch him. That's what the Lord is looking for from us. You don't have to give up. You've just got to take one step and trust that he's going to catch you. Let's pray. This is Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with this son, graciously give us all things? What he's saying there is if he gave us his son, this most precious gift, why in the world would he not give us the other good things that we need? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Nobody. Why? Because it's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. If anybody tries to bring a charge against you, if anyone tries to condemn you, you have an advocate in heaven. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. The answer is no. None of those things shall separate us from the love of Christ. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and this is my question for you, are you convinced of this this morning? That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Yes or no? Are you convinced this morning? To you, do you see a hurricane or do you see a father with his arms out saying, just take a step? God, my prayer for each of us in this room. Some of us, it's weird. It is smooth sailing for us right now. And when it's smooth sailing, it's super easy to say, man, I've got faith and this is it's good. Others are their life is, they're, are in, they're in a hurricane. And they wonder if they're going to make it through the week. God, wherever we are in that continuum, my prayer 
is that we would be men and women of faith. That we would know you well enough to trust that you care. We might not get how you work, but we would never question whether you care about us. That our hearts, the roots of our hearts, would penetrate deeply into this love that you have for us. And when things start going sideways, we would be reminded of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God in Christ for each of us. God, any here today who would say, I don't know who he is, begin to convince them. Speak to those guys in a way that they would understand. Begin to open their eyes to the truth of who you are. For those of us who know who you are, God, I pray that we would live accordingly. We would live as the as children who understand that our Father not only created everything that we see, but he's nearer than our next breath. Show us what it means to be men and women of faith in these specific situations that we've got going on. What does it look like for us to trust you today and tomorrow and on Thursday? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with a worship song. You guys are free to stand. We'll have ministry teams up front. If you want prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, um, y'all can just kind of focus on the Lord here, and then Bo will cut us loose when we're done. So y'all can stand up.